CW stands for Mission to the World, and uh, we have partnered with uh, a number of missionaries in various parts of the world, and uh, one of those is uh, uh, families, or Sam and Elizabeth Goodwin. Now, there's, there's another connection there, and I know that uh, many of you, of course, know them, but we also know there's a number of folks that haven't yet had the opportunity to meet the good ones. Uh, they are from our church. Uh, we were able to send them out. He was uh, ordained here in this sanctuary. Uh, it was while they were here that God called them to Germany, and it was uh, a difficult route that God called them through, but uh, clearly a route that came from God, and he is blessing their ministry. Our focus this whole year has been on deepening our partnerships, and uh, uh, with the Goodwins, uh, um, deepening is never a problem uh, because of our, our deep love for them already. And if you don't know them, uh, I know that uh, that will grow in you as well. They are going to speak tonight uh, um, specifically about uh, what they are doing in uh, Germany in terms of church planting. Uh, but for now, uh, Sam, God bless you as you bring his word. In Germany, you tend to lose a little perspective about things. Uh, at least some of us seem to. We pulled up to the church this morning and Sophie looked and says, that's our church? It's like a big castle. Okay, everything's a big castle in Germany, so, and, uh, and, uh, and then, of course, after about a year and a half of, of being in Germany, uh, you, know, you get to hearing, well, it's German all the time, all the day, all the, all the, the time. Um, it doesn't bother Lizzie so much, but my life is not good that way, and so she's, she's a native German speaker, and, um, and my brain doesn't work anymore, and so it's really, really awful. Except for the fact we, 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 we arrived in Washington, Dulles uh, uh, a couple of days ago, and uh, we stopped at the budget rent a car, and there was a lady standing. There was a group of, of you know, the budget people uh, helping the customers, and we're standing in line, and we overheard the budget lady talking to one of the customers. Lizzie says, her English is really good. <laughs> yeah, almost no accent, sweetie. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's a little adjustment getting coming back to the States. But I tell you, it is, it is nothing like being home. So, uh, it's, it's wonderful for us. The scripture text uh, this morning is coming from uh, the book of Genesis, uh, chap the end of chapter 39 and, um, and then uh, chapter 40. And I'll be starting in chapter 39 uh, at verse 19. Um, and we'll go from there. By the way, my, my sermons are also usually about half this length because they have to be interpreted, uh, and people aren't willing to sit through a, you know, an hour and a half sermon, uh, so it, usually it's, first point is Jesus loves you, and well, that covered it. Second point is, and so this is, I have a little more freedom today, and this is exciting for me, um, but starting in verse, in verse 19 of, of chapter 39, Genesis, this is the word of the Lord. And as soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me. His anger was kindled. 
And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. The keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners, of all the prisoners who were in prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And, when, and whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. The pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. They continued for some time in custody. One night, they both had a dream, or they both dreamed. The cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. When Jesus came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, why are your faces downcast today? They said to him, we've had dreams. and There's no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God. Please tell them to me. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and, jo and said to him, in my dream, there was a vine before me and on the vine, there were three branches. As soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Joseph said to him, this is its interpretation. The three branches are three days. Three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office, and you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand, as formerly when you were his cupbearer. Only remember me when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh. And so, get me out of this house, for I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and there I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. When the, cup, when the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he said to, the, said to Joseph, I also had a dream. See, there were three cake baskets on my head. And in the uppermost basket, there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh. But the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. And Pharaoh answered and said, this is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. And in three days, Pharaoh will lift you up your head from you and hang, it, hang you on a tree. And the birds will eat its flesh from you. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his, to his position and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker, as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing in the Nile. And behold... There came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the grass. And I'm going to skip down to verse 8. So in the morning his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all his wise men. Pharaoh told him his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Then the cupbearer, chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. And we'll end with that. This is the word of the Lord. 
Les Mis is probably one of my favorite Broadway musicals of all time. And I confess, I cry most every time I see it. It, it wrestles with the issues of, of, of law versus grace and mercy. It struggles with hope and broken dreams, with love and rejection. And in one, one central moment of the play, Fantine, who most of you know, is a dying woman whose life has been shattered by rejection and disease and disappointment and is singing her last song as she looks back on her ruined life. And the song's entitled, I Dreamed a Dream. It has the, these as its last words. I had a dream my life would be so different from this hell I'm living, so different now from what I dreamed. Now life has killed the dream I dreamed. And so there in her hospital bed, her body is broken and wasted and she dies there. She's disillusioned and crushed by life as others just sit and watch her silently. And sometimes I watch it unblinking as the last notes fade away and I whisper, yes. I know exactly what you're saying. Or I say, please, God, don't let that happen to me. It touches, it touches something deep within us. It either describes how our life is or was, or puts a finger on one of our great fears. Well, 17-year-old, he's a boy with dreams. He's got big dreams, dreams that he thought came from God himself. He's a beloved, carefree, dream-filled 17-year-old boy, and he's sent on an errand by his father. Sent by his father to see how his brothers are doing. And he never returns. His own brothers see him coming and they talk about killing him. But then wiser voices prevail and so instead they throw him into a hole. They steal his robe, covered in blood, and pretend he's dead. The brothers don't like his dreams. They don't like the message or the messenger. And so they got rid of both. At 17, year old, 17 years old, this boy is sold to a group of passing merchants, some of his, actually, his illegitimate second cousins, to be precise. And he was dragged off to a foreign country as a slave. This is not the way the dream was supposed to go. Dad thinks he's dead. No one's coming to look for him. And he's then sold to a high-ranking army officer and works faithfully as his slave and servant for the next nine or ten years. His loyalty, his morality, and his honor to God and his master are rewarded by being accused and convicted and sent to prison for a crime he didn't commit. He was sent to a filthy, dangerous hole. He has no real hope of ever seeing freedom again. What about that dream? Could he have been so wrong? His dream was so different from that hell he was living. Had life killed his dream? So it's, it's here this morning that we actually and we enter into the drama. We get to watch this terrible story of betrayal and injustice unfold, and we get to ask the same questions that had to have been going through Joseph's mind, at least at some point. Where is God? Is there a God? What have I done wrong? What lesson have I not learned that I need to learn? 
With Joseph, though, we, you know, we can know the end of the story. Just read to the end of Genesis. His dream does come true. He does rise to great power. His brothers do bow down before him. And he's responsible for saving the known world from starving to death. So we watch him here in prison and we say to Joseph, Joseph, don't give up. I mean, really, stay strong. Keep trusting. Your, your life is about to get really good in just a few pages. You see, you and I, we have perspective. We can look at Joseph's life and see the whole picture. We can, see, we can look at it and, and see the goal and even perhaps appreciate how the process worked perfectly to achieve its desired effect. But Joseph didn't necessarily have that advantage. Just like you and I often don't have that advantage in our lives. This passage gives us three perspectives from which we can examine Joseph's situation. The visible perspective, the invisible perspective, and the eternal perspective. The visible, the invisible, and the eternal perspectives. But it's really only when we hold all of these perspectives together can we really have hope. Can we really live life in the midst of good times and bad? First, the visible perspective. The visible, visible perspective says, I know what I see. I know what I feel. And I can make decisions and judgments about my circumstances from my senses. This is how we most often live our lives on a daily basis. Cause and effect. Don't touch the hot stove. It'll burn you. If you cheat on your tests, you'll get in trouble. If you eat too much, you'll get fat. The visible perspective involves observing the circumstances and interpreting life through that. So we have a certain sense uh, with that of a certain order or a certain ought as it, when it comes to this. That is, eat well and exercise ought to lead to better health. Study hard ought to lead to good grades. Treat people well ought to lead to being treated well in return. And when our actions don't lead to the expected result, we get confused, or we get disillusioned, or perhaps we get angry. Joseph knew certain things. He knew he didn't deserve to be in prison. He hadn't done anything wrong. He had consciously decided not to sin against Potiphar and God when he got up and ran away from the very persistent and probably very pretty wife of his master. He had, in fact, he had demonstrated not only self-control and honor regarding her, he had decided that honor, honoring God was more important than either having female companionship or getting revenge against the man who had kept him a slave for these last nine years. He persisted in honoring God, by the way, who, would, who had not seen fit to keep him from being dropped into a hole, dragged from his country, and sold as a slave. That was the God he was serving. So Joseph is sitting in a jail, with his visible, and his visible perspective screams out, there is no God. There is a God, but he's forgotten you. You're being punished for something. Or, you don't deserve this. We know he doesn't like his circumstances, and we know that he doesn't believe he deserves to be there. After he finishes tell, interpreting the dreams of the baker and the cupbearer, he tells the cupbearer in, in, chapter, in chapter 40, verse 14, only remember me 
when it is well with you. And please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh. And so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews. And here also I have done nothing that they should put me into this pit. And then only a few verses later, we discover that not only do the two men get out of prison, but the cupbearer completely forgets him. Joseph proceeds to rot in prison for two more years. Totally unfair. The visible perspective leaves you with only the options of escape from the pain, become angry at the injustice, get revenge, just resign yourself to your plight. Where are you? Do you look at the circumstances around you and interpret them by what you see and you feel? Do you cry out, unfair? Are you filled with fear, anger, resentment, or even pride? There's a gal in our church in Germany, recently divorced. She married, had married a, a Muslim man. Um, neither one of them, well, he wasn't a particularly strong Muslim and she wasn't a believer. And they made agreement that neither one of them was going to raise their children in the Christian or his Muslim religion. And at some point along the way, uh, they began to get a divorce. She became a Christian. And now her, worse, her life is worse than it has ever been. The divorce has gone through. She's afraid now that her husband may take her children because her children are singing uh, children's Christian songs at home now. Um, she has no money. She, um, she wants a man to love on her, but she knows she can't do that the way she wants. She's, she turns to, to Lizzie and she says, I know God chose me and I know he called me and I know he saved me but I think he's probably bored with me now. Yeah. And she said, Lizzie, would you pray for me? Because I think maybe he might listen to you. She looks at the world around her. And she, her visible perspective says, there's no God. Or there's a God, but he's bored with me now. Or he's off somewhere else. One man is in a in, uh, difficult, very difficult situation. His marriage is, is in very bad shape. And he looked at me the other day and he said, Sam, I'm going to be 50 years old next year. This is not what I had thought of when I thought of turning 50. I'm going I'm to make some changes if it doesn't get any better. Sorry, God, he says. I'm going to escape from this marriage because I'm not, it's not the dream I had. He's in prison. The girl's in prison. And it's not their dream. See, we certainly have a visible perspective and we can't escape it. But you see, this passage also shows us an invisible perspective. In the movie, uh, The Princess Bride, Fezzik, the character played by Andre the Giant, and Inigo Montoya, and the Sicilian, were all on the ship, uh, on a ship, traveling through the, the cave, the, the cliffs of despair. And Inigo Mont uh, one of the two, Inigo Montoya Fezzik, looks out the back of the boat and says, you know, there's a boat following us. And the Sicilian says, 
inconceivable, right? Go along the far, I think that boat's getting closer. Inconceivable, says, that little lisp, you know. So then they start climbing the cliffs, and under the, they're strapped onto under the giant, right? And under the giant is working up in, in rather preternatural sort of way, shooting up the cliff. And, and, uh, and I looked down and said, it looks like he's gaining on us. The Sicilian says, inconceivable. Anigo Montoya looks at him and says, you keep using that word. I don't think a word means what you think it means. Okay? <laughs> in this passage, it's rather similar because instead of the word inconceivable, it's the word steadfast love and success. Chapter 39, right there at the end of the chapter in verse 21, it reads, But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor or success in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And then verse 23, The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him and whatever he did, the Lord made him succeed. Um, if this is what it looks like, to have, Lord, to have you showing me steadfast love and making me succeed, I don't think of this word means what you think it means. The scriptures describe Joseph's situation as one of success and blessing. But Joseph might say, I'm rotting in prison. You see, there's something else going on here something that Joseph cannot see in his circumstances, and something that you and I cannot on our own see in ours. It is the, an invisible but very real perspective that is completely hidden from us, and unless we're told, we may not know. I'd say we can't know. We're told that in the midst of all these terrible circumstances that the Lord was showing steadfast love to Joseph. This word is the same word that's used by the prophet Merit Jeremiah in the book of Lamentations. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Simply put, it's God's faithful, pursuing, persistent, unfailing mercy and care for his people. And this steadfast love characterizes God's way of dealing with you and with me regardless of our circumstances. It's as one friend of mine described it this the Hebrew word is chesed, but it's steadfast love, steadfast mercy. It's God's radar love. And it just, once it's locked onto you, it pursues you no matter where you go. You can't escape from it. It's just always there. And this is the love that God was showing Joseph while he was in prison. So God took a boy of 17. He moved him to a household where he could learn the German culture. Etiquette and leadership from the head of Pharaoh's guard. Then he, tenderly caring for Joseph, took him out of the house of Potiphar, where he would have been a slave all of his life. And Joseph learned humility and perseverance in his unhappy circumstances. And then God placed him in a room with the cupbearer of the Pharaoh who would share his dream. And two years later, when the moment was perfect, the Pharaoh had a dream. And the cupbearer said, memory stirs. Makes me think of a man. And God takes this now 30-year-old man and says, now. 
and the wheels start to turn. But for some of you, an invisible perspective isn't enough. I don't care if God's with me. I'm in prison. I want out. I want free from the pain. I want free from the loneliness. You're with me? You're loving me? You're making me succeed? I don't think those words mean what you think they mean. I see people around me who are healthy, successful, beautiful, smart. They're happy. If you really loved me, God, if you really loved me, you'd give me, you'd give me that. Whatever that is. This, what I'm doing right here, right now, this is not my dream. And sometimes, God, if I'm honest, my dreams are more important than you. Regardless of whether my perspective is visible or invisible. We're kind of like Homer Simpson. I forgot to cover the bases. <laughs> when he is introduced to an industrial deep fryer, that as, it is, as, as uh, his buddy puts it, this will cook an entire buffalo in, 60, in 40 seconds. Homer's response is, 40 seconds? But I want it now. You see, we lack perspective. We've got a great deal of visible perspective. And perhaps we're aware of an invisible perspective. But we also need an eternal perspective. So, the eternal perspective. In some ways, pain and pleasure are the opposite sides of the same coin. Both of them cause us to block out the past or the future. And unchecked, they drive us to become completely self-absorbed and self-focused. People, things, relationships, they become objects to avoid or to use to help us relieve the pain or obtain the pleasure. Time stops and they can become all-consuming. And unless we have an eternal perspective, all of life will be evaluated on the basis of what I'm feeling right now. Life becomes, I just want what I want. Or I deserve to be happy. I deserve to feel this way or that way. I want good grades, but I haven't studied, so I'll steal them. Life isn't treating me the way I dreamed, and it feels good to be grumpy, so I'm just going to wallow in my self-pity. Joseph had many, many opportunities to become angry, bitter, and depressed. But, and he didn't. Well, if he did, he didn't stay there. That's because he not, only had, he not only had an invisible perspective, for example, in chapter 39, he says, how can I do this thing with Potiphar's wife and commit so great a sin against God? Or in chapter 40, do not interpretations belong to God? But he also had an eternal perspective. In chapter 45, he's talking to his brothers and he says in verse 5, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For you see, God sent me before you to preserve life. God sent me before you? Joseph had to have an eternal perspective to say something like that. He had to be willing to say, I don't know why I'm suffering right now. I don't know why I have to delay my dreams right now. But I'm certain of this. God has placed me here. In this hole, here in this caravan, here in Potiphar's house, here in prison, and then eventually here with the Pharaoh. And so Joseph says, since he's where God has placed me, this is where I will serve faithfully, even though I do not understand. 
in the book of Habakkuk, near the end of the Old Testament, Habakkuk cries out to God because of the injustice he sees all around him. And God comes to him in chapter 1. He says, look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I'm doing a work in your days that you would not believe if you were told. Could Joseph have imagined that his being sent to Egypt was an essential part of the plan to preserve the remnant that would result in the saving of his people from a famine, but would also result in the sending of a Savior who would save his people from eternal death? In his suffering, Joseph was being prepared. He was being prepared to serve. He was being prepared to trust. He was being prepared to lead. God was not interested in seeing Joseph suffer, simply to see him suffer. God was creating and molding and perfecting Joseph. The problem is, though, we can't just muster up an eternal perspective. I can't just simply look at Joseph and be told, you should stop having only a visible perspective. The only way to have an eternal perspective is to keep your eyes on the one who did what Joseph did, but better. You and I cannot do what Joseph did or do what Jesus did unless we love what Jesus did. Unless we see ourselves, our world, eternity, and our God the way Jesus did, we will never have an eternal perspective. We have a Savior who didn't just simply leave his country. He left the glory of heaven. He wasn't simply thrown into a prison as an innocent man. He was hung on a cross and he was murdered. He was the one who suffered from the very beginning, and yet he was the one in whom the Father said he was well pleased. How can that be? I thought suffering always meant that I'm the one in whom the Father is not well pleased. But the scriptures don't teach that. The only way to have an eternal perspective, that is that God is good, that God is in control, and that God is, as Romans 8.28 tells us, working all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. We have to trust in that promise. We can reject unhealthy pleasures, suspend unfulfilled dreams, suffer through unpleasant pain only if we have an eternal perspective that tells us that this is not all there is. It is an eternal perspective that only comes through having a relationship with the one who proves, who proves that God is good. No other religion can say that. No other religion can say that God loves you, except Christianity. No other religion can say that God enters into your pain and cares about your highest dreams and your deepest disappointments. Only Christianity can say that. Because only in Christianity does God come to earth and enter into your pain. Only in Christianity does God suffer along with you and then die for you. Only in Christianity can we have an eternal perspective that says, for, as Romans 8, 18 tells us, for I consider that the sufferings and pleasures of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. It's not that suffering doesn't hurt. It's not that pleasure isn't fun. It's that now, now we've got perspective. We can, we can live like Joseph does and the Apostle Paul describes in Philippians 4, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. 
I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Why? In one way, Joseph could only properly interpret his circumstances and his life after he became Pharaoh. But the reality is, he would never appreciate what God was doing until after he entered eternity. And even now, the full glory and understanding and appreciation of what God is doing through each of us won't be known until Christ comes again. If we refuse to see our lives and circumstances through the eyes of the one who came and died for us so that we might have real life, and if we don't bow our knee to him, then we become like the brothers who attempt to kill both the message and the messenger. But through Jesus Christ, we're free to live. We're free to take risks and dream dreams that conditions and circumstances cannot kill. Are you willing to surrender yourself to him and his perspective? Let's close in prayer. Father, we can hear these words and we can say, I need to be better. I need to do better. I need to have a better perspective. But Lord, we cannot do this on our own. Give us perspective, Lord. Give us, a, 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 as we have our visible perspective, give us our an invisible knowing perspective, knowing that you're with us and you walk with us and you care for us. And how invaluable that is, but also I pray, Lord, you'd give us an invisible, I mean, an internal perspective. So that we, and trusting you, knowing that the, that the present suffering is like dust compared to the future glory. Help us to serve faithfully where we are, whether it's in joy or in suffering. Trusting in you and walking with you. And learning, and learning to love the things you love. All these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.